of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of Outlaw Radio, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area. Following program, True Crime Uncensored, produced by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. Thank you, Howard. Man over there, Howard Lapidus, manager of the star. I am the, dare I say it, and I dare say it, legendary Burl Bear, our fact checker, Mark C.G. Boyer. Where do we come to this legendary stuff? What? This should happen. This, this should happen. What are you talking? He's on the phone. He's talking to me, and he's on the phone all at the same time. He's talking to his wife or his mistress. Frank Hagen. Are you here, Frank? Frank Hagen's in the building, too. Don't ask, don't tell. We're talking about the military today, so why don't you join us? Ah, <laughs> oh, okay, enough of the men in black. God, bear me. Saving Sandoval. I know that sounds like a story of hoarders, but it's not. It's a brand new book that's coming out uh, any day now, any way now. It shall be released. It's a military story, but it's also a crime story. It's a defense story. It's a prosecution story. It's the same old story, a fight for love and glory. Got a Las Vegas attorney on the phone to handle everything. How you doing, Craig? Craig. Hello, Craig. Did you lose him, Matt? <laughs> no, I, I did not lose him. You he, didn't lose him? He may have lost himself. Yeah, he hung up. So. Oh. All right, this time, hang in there, bud. Yeah, you're on the air. Let's do it. Let's do it. Craig. Craig escaped from... Hey, this is Craig. Good, good. Craig, you escaped from Las Vegas, Nevada, and you went to where the hell are you? Mississippi, Michigan? Uh, Missouri. Well, same difference. <laughs> Craig, uh, Craig, it's Howard. How do you do? It's good to meet you. Uh, uh, I'm Howard. I'm, I, just so you know, I'm here. I don't know if you've heard the show, but, but uh, I'm here to keep the legendary Burl Bear in check. Sounds good. Yeah, Sounds I, I watched uh, Czech streets and I watched uh, Czech couples and Czech wine. You know, it's uh, like swap. It's like a train wreck watching a train wreck. That's yeah. exactly what it is. Yeah, it is nothing short I, of that. I like Czech streets the best. And I knew you would go that Czech route. Yeah, and check that one again. Okay. okay. Mark C. G. Boyer is our fact checker, which Hello. means he he researched a story, and if you misspell your name or something, he'll correct you. So he's, yeah. he's, he's here to correct me because I, I, I'm missing the story. And uh, we also have Frank Hagen, uh, who's here, who's a uh, famed semi-television producer. Uh, and Thank you for that. Bon vivant. Uh, he has a rack on top for the rack on tour. Hey! And uh, there's no reason for him to be here except we like him. I made a wrong turn in the green room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, what the heck are you doing here, Frank? I invited him. Oh, okay. Uh, okay, Craig. Uh, how does, because we'll work backward on this, how does a an attorney in Las Vegas, Nevada, who should spend most of his time uh, convincing Seagull Suites to change Gambling. the color of their damn buildings, <laughs> which are so damn ugly uh, that someone should legally take action? Yeah. But instead of doing that, you should be either gambling or in Naked City saying hi to all my little hooker friends. Hey, the truth is, let me ask you a question. <laughs> you, you, live in, you live in that town. Yeah. And when I go to that town, I'm on the strip, and that's exactly where I get the beginning and end of my story. I don't go anywhere else. But you live there. Do you ever get near the strip? 
You know, that's, it's a great question, and it's, it's a question I get a lot. Um, and, and the answer is I work near Fremont Street, so my office is, is near downtown. Um, so I will get there actually a little more than the Strip. If a friend's in town, I'll go meet him for a beer or meet him for a, a lunch or something like that. Um, but on, on the Strip itself, unless I'm there for a case to meet with a client, to look at, look at some location for some reason, uh, or, again, friends in town, I just I I do not. Well, you're you're there by the Fremont Street experience, which, if my memory serves me well, was paid for with money that was a bond issue for a city park, and that's why when it opened, people were setting up their barbecues (laughs) in protest. That's funny. It's a true story. Craig, did that happen? Is that what happened? Well, you know, I'm not 100% sure on it. I know that it's controversial because it, it did turn into uh, what was a, a public street, um, which is still a quasi-public street um, in the middle of it. And, and that, that there actually is a lot of litigation about free speech uh, but, and, and uh, the right to protest and demonstrate and all that stuff on that, on that special street. That you, you, have to admit, you have to admit the work they did on that is a positive. And they drag more tourists down there, and the tourist dollars. And uh, I, it's any, hard to hold a barbecue of, there, though. Oh, forget <laughs> the barbecue. Any negative on that, I think, is a waste of time. Was that Mayor Oscar? No, no. It was before. I him. think it was pre him. Yeah, it was just yeah. before him. Yeah, Mayor pre him. You remember Mayor pre him? He was from Punjab. How do you feel about the strip? You think it's safe? Do I think it's safe? He would. He doesn't go down there. That's why it's safe. Well, I, I will tell you there is a huge police presence there. And when something does happen, because uh, I do criminal defense, I also do some injury cases. And so when uh, when something does happen, it's amazing how quickly they are able to, to be there. And it, and it is multiple police officers. So as far as how safe it is, I, I don't know. I'll uh, tell you, you know, Craig, when it was really safe is when the mob ran stuff. Oh, well, now you're talking. <laughs> because when the guy used to do the advertising for the Aladdin back in the old days, and uh, if if someone was pickpocketing, they were stealing the mob's money. If a, if a, a hookerette was ripping off a customer, they were stealing the mob's money. That's exactly right. So they made sure that you didn't get you pickpocketed, didn't you didn't right. get ripped off, and you went home and said, boy, I had a great time in Las Vegas. And, oh, the food was good. And cheap. Damn good and cheap. ninety-five for a 12-ounce steak. <laughs> I remember those days? Yeah, I remember. But let's yeah. get back to the, I don't the brand new to, book. I don't want to get to Craig's book yet. I want to. You do? Yeah, because it's controversial. It's more controversial than a free speech so rally da- in Fremont. It is so damn controversial. <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe it. How's that, Craig? I don't believe the story. You, okay. you don't believe Saving Sandoval is a true story? I believe parts of it. Um, but the audience doesn't even know what the story is yet. Let, let Craig tell the story, then we'll talk about me. <laughs> sure. Uh, um, well, I, I guess I'll preface it with I, I believe it's a true story. That's uh, only because you were there. I, I, correct. Um, it, it's the story of my defense and representation of a guy named Jorge G. Sandoval, who was a 22-year-old uh, infantryman uh, from Laredo, Texas, who was deployed to Iraq in the 2000. I think he was actually deployed the 2006, early 2007 time frame, and his unit is a, a very famous unit from World War II, the Parachute Infantry Regiment out of Alaska, and they were deployed to Iskan, Iraq, um, which was in the Sunni, or well, in the Triangle of Death, which... Oh, what a lovely title, the Triangle of Death. 
Is, was that a, like a local name for this place for centuries? If we're talking about lo lovely titles, should we go down to your, your tomes? No. Okay. <laughs> okay. Triangle, Triangle of Death sounds like one of the women I knew in Naked City. <laughs> what, one of them? Okay, several of them. All right, there. Well, I, I don't know who named it that. Uh, it, it doesn't sound like a good place to be. No. Uh, and it certainly wasn't. Uh, his unit and um, basically Iraqi units that were friendly to, to uh, the coalition forces uh, were taking extremely uh, he heavy casualties in the area. And his unit and a number of other units were having a hard time um, in, in countering this and trying to figure out what's going on. So they started shuffling people around. They started kind of changing um, the ability for certain units to take take on certain types of activities, and they, they end up moving uh, Sandoval from his regular job as an infantryman, which is an extremely dangerous job, patrolling roads, uh, being on large, large groups to attack um, where they believe where the enemy is located. They move him to the sniper section, and they make him, uh, essentially they field test him as a sniper. And to him, this is, this is extremely positive because he, here he is, an infantryman, and, um, you know, in a, in a real battle, he's going to be sent in as a sniper, which is, by many accounts, considered a more elite uh, level of operator. And he hadn't gone to the sniper school at Fort Benning, but he was going to be hand-taught by the snipers in his unit. And they select him. He's excited about it. And he starts training. And then they send him out on a mission. And during that mission, it's uh, his first kill. The mission is led by his sniper section leader, which is the most senior sniper in the unit, an extremely battle-tested soldier. And he directs Sandoval to take a shot uh, of an individual that they believe is the enemy. And Sandoval complies and takes this shot from the sniper position and kills the guy. And the book is about what happens after that. So, first of all, how did you hook up with this guy? I was detailed. Um, I was in the. Uh, I was a captain in the Army JAG Corps, and I was. I had just gotten to Iraq myself uh, around the uh, April time frame of 2007, and they were assigning there as, as charges came about in regard, regarding a number of issues in Sandoval's unit. Uh, they were the military was assigning him defense counsel. Um, Kind of like uh, in the movie A Few Good Men, we see that Tom Cruise has assigned the defense uh, of those individuals. That's exactly what happened to me, is I was assigned the defense of, uh, of Specialist Sandoval. So there you are, and now, this, as you say, the story begins. Well, Burl has a question. Yeah, go ahead. Now, did you ever meet those two girls? Oh, no, wait, that wrong question. Again, <laughs> I was. <clears throat> Craig, you do know that this show is the number one true crime show. In America, then. With, 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 with prostitutes. Yeah. yeah. What are you talking about? <laughs> Just because Frank's here doesn't mean you have to disparage his career. Right. <laughs> now, where was I? Uh, oh, we uh, when he shoots this guy, the fellow he, he kills, uh, did he shoot the wrong guy? I mean, why, why is there an issue about this? Is That's the guy, what I, I want to get to. I is he a friendly? I want to get to the issue. Yeah. And I know, Craig, I know you don't want to give up the book. Don't worry about it. We'll, we'll sell, sell the, the book. book. Yeah. <laughs> Well, here's what I can tell you. Here, here's what happens. He, he shoots the guy, and then he continues on, and there, there are no issues. 
Uh, they come back and they give a story about what happened and, uh, in the military. They call it an after-action review, and there, there are no issues. And then he goes on in, in May, a couple of weeks later, goes on another mission where another guy does kill somebody. And this one is called a close kill, and a close kill is exactly what it sounds like. It's where you are shooting somebody who is extremely close to you as opposed to a sniper shooting somebody, you know, hundreds of you know, feet, yards uh, away. This was a close kill, and a guy was shot in the head with a 9mm and, and killed um, while Sandoval and his unit were on patrol. And there were questions about how that, that shooting came about, how that... Um, went down. There were a lot of rumors in his unit. There were a number of individuals there. I think five or six um, snipers and infantrymen were, were, were sort of present. Um, they were at least on the mission together when this happened. And so what, what, what precipitated Sandoval getting charged ultimately with murder for the shooting he did was the second case. And that, that's because that case Everybody's talking about it, and some soldiers get in trouble for some minor, some minor things, and Army criminal investigation uh, detectives fly to their operating base, and they begin interviewing these soldiers about some, some relatively minor events, and they say, oh, by the way, let us off of this because we're going to tell you about a murder. And that is what happened, and that's when Army CID begins investigating the events that happened in May of 2007. And then they come back and they decide. Wait, wait, wait! Rewind, rewind, rewind. Exactly. <laughs> because we, we're, we're all. I'm. I, I'm off the bus here. Yeah. I've got questions galore. Go ahead, bro. You want to go first? First thing, the close. I mean, it's all very detailed. You know, we shot the guy was shot with the nine millimeter. Why? <laughs> Who? What? When? Where? Why? The fellow shot at close range, which I'm not sure what this has to do with the other shooting, except it's all taking place it in was the timing. war. It was all about timing. Well. On the, on, the, on the close kill, it's the, the allegation is that this, they're on a, a mission and um, that, the, that they're all sleeping for the night, and this guy walks up on them. Yeah, but let's, let's rewind to your guy. Yeah. Uh, it seems to me, and, and let me play uh, street-side mm-hmm. defense counsel. I'm not a lawyer. but I, He's I, played one, though. I, I know a couple. But the, um, my question is, the way you lay this out, taking it from the time he was ordered to shoot and kill, ordered to do that. At the end of the day, why is he being charged for murder based on an order? Forget the second case. Let's stick with your case. Because uh, the second case makes the press. And the second case, um, the justifications for the shooting are not that clear. And the command then lets Army CID come in, and it's, by all accounts, extremely young investigators who they bring in. They do not bring in uh, battle-tested war crimes investigators. They bring in young kids. uh, And these young kids, they think they have bad killers in Sandoval's unit. And so they... They then start with this May issue. They then start with that, and then they also hear rumors that Sandoval told somebody he had questions about this April shooting. 
So then they go and do that investigation, and then they recommend to the command, hey, we think that wasn't justified either because the guy who was shot in April by Sandoval, he didn't have a uniform. He didn't have a gun. And we think he should have had one of those two things, and because he didn't, Sandoval's shooting was bad, too. And yeah, that's but, essentially but, but, the rationale. But isn't Sandoval's shooting based on an order? It is. So he was ordered to do it. Correct. And isn't it, isn't it normal mm -hmm. for the insurgents of that period to dress and act as civilians? To camouflage 100%. So what, what, what were Sandoval's questions? What do, you, what do you mean? Well, you said Sandoval had some questions, and I'm sitting there going, well, why the hell is he opening his mouth? He, he had some, he, well... What it was based on is a conversation, part of the conversation, that he had with a friend where he said, essentially, the guy didn't have a weapon, and this was Sandoval's first shooting. Um, he, didn't, he never said it was a bad kill. He never said, uh, I don't think it was right. He had just mentioned to somebody, hey, the guy I shot um, didn't, have a, didn't have a uniform on, didn't have a gun, uh, wasn't pointing any sort of weapon at me, and... Army CID took this as somewhat of an admission, so, and it, it so, really wasn't. So that guy threw him under the bus? <clears throat> that guy threw him under the bus, and, and everybody at the time was throwing everybody under the bus for, to, to a certain extent when these, um, when these Army CID agents came to the unit. Wasn't this during that infamous, the surge period? It, 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 it absolutely was, yes. Okay, so it was a lot of mass confusion because there were a lot of people over there and a lot of people not knowing what they were doing. Yes, and the rules... The rules of engagement, what these units could or could not do, had been changing. And, uh, and I outline this in detail in the book, that there was, there was an issue as to whether or not that the shootings that were the increase in, I guess, force being used by the U.S. forces, which had also happened in response to you know, their, their, the, the U.S. forces taking casualties, how, how much that was pushed from higher. And there were some issues there that we thought some of these things had been truly pushed down as far as get more aggressive, that kind of thing, um, from higher. But in Sandoval's case, it was very, we, my, my defense and the defense that we used at trial and the defense that we developed as we began interviewing witnesses ourselves uh, was that this was completely justified. Can that we, this was absolutely justified. Can we uh, go, go is we gonna, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, no, can we... No, we're not, Howard. We're not? Oh, okay. That was, that was, that was following uh, I thought we were taking a break. That doesn't matter. Let's, let's talk about the defense and what your strategy was. You get this case, what's the first thing you do, and, and let's, let's, build, let's watch you build this. Sure. I, uh, I get assigned the case, and the file comes in on different types of servers. Uh, and what I mean by that is we were getting... Part of part of the of the file was coming on regular um, computers, and part of it was coming on uh, classified types computers. And so the first off thing that I was trying to do was figure out: is this a classified case, and is it not a classified case, and what are we what are we doing with that? Because certainly, if it if the whole case had been a classified case, I would never have been able to write the book and not be talking <laughs> to you <laughs> about it. But it also dealt with how we were going to handle it, how who, what we were going to be able to share with witnesses and evidence. And there were issues here that that are and we I discussed very brief in the book that everything that I've discussed and will be discussing is all unclassified. But it was all a lot of things were meshed together. And so we were trying. I myself and and I had a paralegal assisting at the time, trying to figure out, okay, is this something that we can 
addressed. The case by that time, even when I got it, had made a number of newspapers because the government, the Public Affairs Office uh, in Baghdad for the Army, had issued a press release that they had charged Sandoval and two other individuals with murder and that they were cracking down on, on rogue infantrymen, that kind of thing. And so I was trying to figure out, well, can I respond to this? Can I, what, what can I do? And so we, we first figured out that essentially the facts of Sandoval's case were not classified. And then I tried to figure out where he was, and he had been detained, uh, essentially held in confinement in Kuwait. And then I, I had just gotten to Iraq, and I had to figure out, how the heck do I get to Kuwait, um, and, and how, how, does this, how does this work? And we figured that out, and after about a week of traveling on one helicopter or one bus or one convoy, I got the heck out of Iraq and on a plane to Kuwait, and I went and, and met Jorge Sandoval in person. And that, that is how I began, uh, began the case. At that point, you had a case that went kind of high profile. By far was the highest profile case I had ever been involved with. Um, I had actually prosecuted murder cases um, when I, before I had been deployed to Iraq. I was a trial counsel, which is a a fancy term for military prosecutor. And I had had handled serious cases, but none of them had ever really made the paper at all. And so, yeah, this by far was my first experience with a high profile case. How how did that affect uh, your strategy? It, It didn't at first. Um, other than trying to figure out uh, what I could say if, if I was questioned. I was, we had gotten some emails um, from reporters. I hadn't responded because, again, I didn't, I didn't know what I could say. Uh, I didn't know. I knew I couldn't say anything classified, obviously. That, that's, that's basic. But I also didn't know what I, what I could or should say um, to anyone else. And so at the time, I didn't, I didn't talk to anybody. I didn't respond. I, well, I shouldn't say I didn't I may have responded and said, hey, I'm not making a statement right now. Uh, I'll take down your email, that kind of thing. And, and I, I did not initially talk to the press. It was not until I began to read everything in the case. It was not until I began to interview witnesses and realized that this entire investigation, everything had never been challenged. The government, the prosecutors, the command, CID, they just asked the questions they wanted to ask and got the answers they wanted to, and so they thought, well, this looks good enough for us. And it wasn't until I began to challenge questions, for example, challenge these statements that Sandoval had supposedly made about the April shooting, challenging, hey, did he say he didn't think he was right? Did he say he thought he committed a crime? Did, did he say anything like that? I mean, did he actually say that? Well, no, it's not really what he said. Well, okay, well, wait a minute. Um, and so it, it began the, the peeling back of the onion, which is uh, a lot of trialers, we like to call that cross-examination. But really, when you start peeling it back, it starts stinking, and it starts affecting you. And that's exactly what we tried, we tried to do with the cases, begin to peel that back. Um, and, and so those were the next steps, and that's, that's what we did next. But the first thing you had to do is refute what your client may have already said. You're, you're absolutely right. And he had given a statement, um, which it, it, what had happened was he was home on leave in Texas where uh, he had given, I think, two weeks, his two weeks of leave. So he is home. 
and the army is breaking this this case what they think is this this you know, hellacious war crime, uh, and so they send from Fort Hood, Texas, they send an Army CID agent from there to go interview Sandoval to get answers um, to, to the questions that they had regarding the April shooting, and he does fully comply with this, again, not, not thinking he's done anything wrong, um, thinking, hey, this is the command, I need to cooperate with them, where's, and he where's does his, give a statement. Where's his lawyer at the time? Where are you? It, he has no lawyer. His lawyer's over in Iraq trying to trying to figure out where he's supposed to sleep for the night. Uh, that, that, that's, that's where I was. I had not been assigned the case oh, okay. uh, at that point, and he had no lawyer. This is a fascinating case. Bro, what's the name of the book? The name of the book is Saving Sandoval, because that's the guy's name, and he had to save him. You know, he should have been around for the Nuremberg trials. That would have kept you busy. Well, this one kept him busy. This, yeah. is a, this is a fascinating story, and the book has got to be something. Well, I'm sure the book is fascinating, or they wouldn't bother to publish it. <laughs> well, I mean, that. these are very discriminating well, people of this publishing company. Then they got to publish directly. Pearl, 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 they publish me. your books. That's what I mean. That They're very discriminating and intelligent. No, hey, no, Mark, sorry. I, Mark, I can defend myself against Pearl. Don't worry. <laughs> he doesn't have to hire this lawyer. Uh, lawyer no, does it? I would, though. You would hire this guy. Yeah. yeah, well, he's got military training, too, right? Uh -huh. Yeah. At what point uh, did you recognize that your client was actually innocent of the charges? <laughs> what did you realize he was innocent? What, was supposed to have presumption of guilt here? From day one. What are you talking well, about, Mark? Well, that's your, you're supposed to think, but I mean, when you actually knew. You know, you know I think that's a great, that's a great question. Let's, because, uh, hang on, uh, Craig, let, let's, let's not call Mark's questions great. <laughs> <laughs> it goes to my head, you know, right. and there's enough egos in the room. It's a whole week we got to put up with them then. <laughs> Uh, I, here's here's my answer to that. Is as as we began to peel back the onion after I listened to what Sandoval told me what happened, and I looked at the statements and I began to say, "Holy, holy Manoli!" Uh, I don't know if I can use bad words. So you I don't can use, use all the words. filthy words you like, and we know you do. <laughs> <laughs> now uh, comes the. I, I, I was saying, "Holy crap." This is a problem, and, and here's why. It's the scariest position a criminal defense attorney can be in is to have an innocent client. That, that's the scariest thing that can be Because you feel happen. even more responsible. Let's find out why after the break. Sounds good. We'll be back in a minute. <laughs>
saying goodnight from Hollywood. Hollywood can say goodnight for itself, buddy. Hi, I'm Burl Pear, taking time out of my busy schedule of combing my hair and <laughs> what hair is left. Maybe I should say dying my hair. <laughs> yeah, there we go. I was to remind you, I also write books. You thought I was illiterate. Well, that's okay. You can be illiterate, too. As long as you buy the book, I don't care if you ever read it. It looks great on your shelf, so do you. And you know, <laughs> if you can't put them on the shelf, what can you do with them, right? America loves stupid people, and God knows this country doesn't have enough to make them all fit, you know, in all the cupboards. Oh, I don't so know put what the a, hell. So put them on a shelf. Put them on a shelf. Yeah. Buy my books. Well, yeah, they're cheap, they're dirty, they're exciting. You can buy them in paperback and use them to swat flies, or you can use an e-book, and those were the intellectuals in the audience who... Are probably socialists. Okay, uh, now meanwhile, back to uh, True back Crime Uncensored. To true Crime <laughs> Uncensored with Burl Bear and Howard Lapidus. You could use it. You could use it to swat flies. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like fun. It's summertime. The living's easy. <laughs> I don't know. That's a practical. That's a practical use. Of course you, it is. You took the audience through that piece. Yeah, that's worth the money. It's, it's, it's right so, there. I'll, I'll buy the book just for that. Just for Featuring marks. C.G. Boyer. Don't use Sandoval's book for that, because he's got enough service already being, you Craig know. Sandoval's book is called... Saving Sandoval. And you can get it out. It's by Craig Drummond. Sa saving yeah, Sandoval's yeah, privates. <laughs> Saved his publics, too. Yeah, that's for sure. Bulldog so, Drummond. They ever call you Bulldog Drummond? They, they, they don't, but, uh, <laughs> but my uncles, uh, they, they certainly talk about it. Yeah. Bulldog Drummond. Mm -hmm. Well, not like Boston Blackie, though. That's a different, a different thing. Yeah, Boston Blackie was friend of those who had no friends. Well, he was, uh, he was in the uh, Southie mob. Yeah, and Craig was in the uh, military mob. Same difference. At my point. Yeah. So there we were, minding our own business. When, tell who was this guy that was assassinated that uh, upset everybody? Why they do that? Do you have any idea? Say that one more time. I, I, I okay, the so-called close kill, which is a polite way of saying assassinating someone with a nine-millimeter handgun, which will fire uh, what uh, but thirteen you're shots assuming, in three seconds. Bro, you're <laughs> assuming it's an assassination. Oh, what, excuse me. What happened here? Because our uh, guest knows. On, on on the on the May 2007 shooting, the close kill. Um, one hundred percent. Sandoval didn't fire the shot. Sandoval had been present um, on the exterior of, uh, of a consolidated hide site. Hide site is just essentially, uh, if they use sleeping bags, it would be like setting the sleeping bags in a circle and putting the most important people in the middle and everybody in the circle or everybody on the outside of the circle looking out to making sure people didn't come in. Um, snipers obviously don't use sleeping bags. Um, but that that's essentially what happened, and Sandoval's on the outside. And, and during this ordeal, uh, what Sandoval knows is that this individual walks up on him. By some accounts, he's, he's doing it accidentally. By other accounts, he, um, uh, he, he's making a lot of noise and needed to be silenced. And what exactly takes place in the middle of this circle, there's really only three people in the world who know 100% what happened, and that's the guy who shot him, 
that's the guy, Hensley, who's the sniper section leader, who's in the middle, and that's the guy who's dead. Um, and there's a lot of questions about what happened, but what I, what I do know and what I can say with certainty, Sandoval didn't have a darn thing to do with it. Um, and later they never identified who exactly this guy was. Um, also at the trial, interestingly enough, they never identified, well, were able to identify who the guy he shot, my guy shot in April. Um, was but you know so there, there's a lot of questions about yeah, what that happened. seems a little peculiar because uh, if I was the commanding officer the head sniper dude say okay Sandoval see that man over there who I don't know who he is or what he does I want you to kill him what, what usually was, they identify you know somehow this fellow is an insurgent he's you, a you, you must you have know. drilled down on that guy why did he give the order he, he gave the order because about eighth of a mile away um, and, and this is this is discussing the Sandoval shooting and not the May shooting, right, but right. on the Sandoval shooting, um, about an eighth of a mile away, U.S. forces had come under attack, and Iraqi forces who were operating with them had come under attack, and the insurgents who had attacked them were fleeing. And they believed that this guy was serving as a lookout, which would completely be consistent with what he was doing he was allegedly a farmer cutting grass, which was the whole prosecution's case, that this guy's a farmer cutting grass. However, um, Sandoval, his sniper section leader, and there's some radio traffic between the Army units, the, the U.S. Army units and the Iraqi Army units, um, discussing these guys fleeing at the same time, and the platoon leader, the officer, the commissioned officer in charge of all these units, saying also take these people who are fleeing out. And so we, we now have another order that comes into play as well. Um, so that's why he's actually shot, is because the, snipe, the, the sniper observer, this individual named Hensley, uh, who's the one who orders the shooting, he believed that this guy was acting as a lookout. Okay. Does that, does that kind of make sense? It kind of makes sense, but it, you know that it doesn't make sense at all. It has nothing to do with what you were, you, your job was. It has nothing to do with Sandoval's job. It has nothing to do with the uh, order that uh, Sandoval was given to shoot the guy. Um, so if we just stay on that case and not go to the May shooting and stay on the Sandoval case, how do you get this guy off? What, what's, your, what's, your, what's your tactic at that point? Well, he was only following orders. That's well, we, we, to, to, to use that as a defense, to use following orders as a defense, you have to, and it's, it's interesting that one of you earlier said Nuremberg, because the, the concept of following orders is something that really became a lot clearer after Nuremberg, because right. the Germans' entire, their, their whole argument that every one of these officers tried to say is, we were just following orders. And as the American public learned, and the world learned, in the law of war, that's not a defense if that order is not lawful. That's not a defense so, if that's unjust. Okay, so he was then. If it, let's say it's unjust, Sandoval is to look at the guy that gave him the order and say, "No, I'm not doing it." That's the, that is the that is my absolute defense. Is that Sandoval? Well, we we argued a couple of things. We argued one that everything about this was legit, which that's my position then, or was my position then, that's my position today, it's the position I outlined in the book, but we also, that's one of the positions we take, at, or that I took at trial. The other position is, even if, 
even if you want to assume that something happened wrong, his job was not to question the sniper section leader, which is a little different than just following an order, and here's why. A sniper team, and I had to learn all this because even as a regular, I was a regular officer in the National Guard before I even became a, a JAG officer, but even as a, as a regular officer, I had no idea how a sniper team actually worked. And a sniper team, by Army regulation, is a two-man team. There is the shooter, and there is the observer or the spotter. And the person who determines what the appropriate target is is the observer or the spotter. It's not the shooter, because the shooter oftentimes is the f lowest one to the ground who can't see what's going on around him. His job is to look at this one person, and he's been told to take the shot. And he can't question what's going on around him, because then he's not able to focus on this. So he's person. more like a piece of equipment than a person at that point, as far as role goes. Absolutely. It's like a piece of field artillery. If somebody calls in artillery fire from five miles away and the artilleryman says, okay, what are the coordinates? I'm going to aim this at those coordinates and launch it. He can't tell what's going to go on five miles away. And that's exactly what, what the sniper relationship is. And I didn't have to get the military jury to take my word for it. I was able to get the judge to appoint an expert witness because I explained to the court, the judge, I said, I need somebody to come in here and explain this so that this jury, who's not made up of snipers, it's senior military folks, but not made up of snipers, so that they understand that this is what this regulation, which the sniper regulation, actually says. And we were able to get the head sniper instructor, instructor from Fort Benning to fly to Iraq to testify on behalf of Sandoval. I bet you he was thrilled with that. Well, <laughs> well, it, it, he, well, happens frequent flyer miles. <laughs> well, he he was not thrilled at first, but he was after he learned everything about the case. He was after he read all the statements and after we talked and after I explained that what they how they were were judging him. At that point, he became just as angry as I was, um, that Sandoval was being charged with murder, facing the rest of his life in prison uh, for this April shooting. And, and at that point, um, I had no issues getting him to get on a plane and provide whatever assistance uh, was needed to help him. Walk us walk through his cross-examination. His cross by the government? By you. Well, we, we brought him in as our witness, so for me, it was just it was just a direct, um, and we actually quote, I try to be careful in the book to um, to not not quote everything, because as I'm sure, as you all, as readers, it's like you don't want to necessarily read an entire trial transcript, because then you're like, why did you write the book? Why not just print the transcript? Uh, and so I tried <laughs> to... People I tried can't read trial transcripts. <laughs> it makes them crazy. <laughs> Not only that, but if you this, I, I this got to get in my soapbox. Do you mind if I get in my soapbox real quick? I, uh, this is going to be painful. I just going to be very uh, yeah. painful for everyone, but I got to do it anyway. I wish you just get in your soapbox. Okay, one moment, please. All right, let him do it. I'll stop. Well, him okay. When people who read true crime books, which your book is in that genre as well, true crime books, when they say all this book does is put in a bunch of trial transcripts. I want to go to their home and strangle them, not in their sleep, but while they're wide awake. <laughs> because it is so difficult to take trial transcripts, 
go through them, find the most important points, and extract those, and put them inside of a readable narrative is far more work than anything else in the damn book. So basically, you're calling yourself a big shot. No, a hard worker, just like this guy is. Okay, but, uh, and when people say, oh, they didn't do any work, they just put trial transcripts in there, I say, screw them. Are, are you reading uh, your Twitter feed? Oh. Where, where are you getting oh. this crap? Go on Amazon, read reviews. Jonathan Dennis put in trial transcripts. Let me oh, tell you something. You're talking about 45-year-old men sitting there in their underwear. Well, I'm bolder than that, and I, I sit in my underwear. Well, yeah, yeah, but then... Uh, okay, I, I still can't get that image out of my head. Stop it. <laughs> People are going to give you the same static, uh, Craig. They're going to well, say, "Well, he knows that. He's already <laughs> taken some some crap for it." But, but it I would happen. get your own crew of snipers Here's the good and news. set them up on Amazon. Here's the good news. Just to get those people. Here's the good news for Craig. He's got something that's controversial that people will want to read. But oh that's, well, that's his plus right there. Yeah, well, that's a good. That's some good news, and, and he's going to get his haters on, on Twitter. And oh, of course he is. On the Amazon feed. You are aware of that, aren't you? That there I'm, are. I'm ready. Oh I'm man, ready. I'll tell Bring you. Bring it on. Listen, listen <laughs> yeah. I tell my clients this: do not read any reviews. Oh, I know. My do editor not, told me that. Do I, not read any reviews. I made the mistake of reading the reviews. Well, then, so that's why you want to be. You've turned yourself into a killer. You, you I'm like only following orders from my publisher. There you go. <laughs> I, I got one quick question. Yes, Frank Hagen. How close to this was around the time American Sniper was happening? That, well, the movie? No, well, not the movie. I mean, the actual Chris, I can't think of his last name. And Chris I Kyle. Chris Kyle, yes. Chris Kyle, yeah. He let me read his book one time. I don't know, um, because I don't know exactly. I've seen, I didn't read, I have not read Chris Kyle's book. Um or the one about him. Uh, I, I have seen the movie. You, um, but, but, but Craig, you've deconstructed that movie already. Uh, pretty much. But the yeah. thing that I'm wondering is, the Army worketh in strangest ways. That's the best way to put it. And I think what they did on this case is, they had uh, Chris Kyle, Mr. Superhero, and everybody was wondering how many kills, how many kills, how many kills. And somebody, they had to be able to turn somebody up to say, but you know what, when they don't do it right... We go after them, and here's a sample. So they let Chris Kyle skate by because he was the American hero, and this guy they tried to make into the American anti-hero and bury him. That's a one huge assumption on your part. Well, I'm talking in terms of the Army. <laughs> All right. What do you think of that, Craig? Well, you know, that, that it's, an it's an interesting point, and I do try... I guess, and this is the best answer I can give you, is I try very hard in the book to not make it a negative book because I, I've got enough, and I'm sure we all do, I've got enough negative things in my own life. I don't need to sit down and spend 10 years um, thinking about it and, and putting it to paper about negative stuff. And so I, I tried very hard in the book not to say, you know, Damn the command, damn the army, damn the prosecutors. I try very hard not to do that. What I do is I outline how warfare and now and how it's not going to change is completely different than warfare in World War II, in Korea, uh, and even in some ways, some ways, Vietnam, in that we now have enemies who have no flag. 
We have enemies who have no common uniform. We have enemies who have completely different types of, of weaponry, so we can't identify them by that. And we're sending troops like Jorge Sandoval Jr., a 22-year-old infantryman, into these countries where we've got Iraqi nationals, we've got coalition forces, we've got al-Qaeda, we've got ISIS, we've got all these different types of entities there. And then we, we're trying to say, well, the enemy, once we find the enemy, we should kill them. Well, who is the enemy? How clear are they? What, how, how much do we want to be judging the actions of these, of these young men and women? And there are men and women um, doing this. You know, how much do we want to second-guess them and criticize them? And I, so I do, I do talk about that in the book because I think this is clearly a case where the people who were criticizing were doing this 100%. 100% in hindsight. Let me ask you They something. were not doing it from when it happened. Let me ask you something. Having said everything you just said, do you feel safe in America? Do I feel safe in America? That was the question. Um, I, I, I feel safe in America. Um, I, I, I feel safer in America than I do in just about any other country. Um... I, 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 if you're asking if I feel safe because of of all the the threats that we potentially have against America, is that is that, is that I guess maybe maybe I should ask to clarify that. That's 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 part of the question. Yes, that's part of the question. Uh, well, I'm I'm sitting here in an office uh, in my hometown of St. Joseph, Missouri, conducting this this interview uh, because I happen to be here for a family event and, and St. Joe's the home of the Pony Express and it's where Jesse James was shot. And here's what I will say about St. Joseph, Missouri and most small cities that I know of in the U.S. I'm sure, I am sure that if Al-Qaeda or ISIS or some group of more than, I don't know, 10 people decide to come here and start hurting America, that everybody and everybody's cousin and third cousin is going to get out there with a um, Remington 870 shotgun and put that problem down. Yep. And whatever that may be. Um, so if we do get attacked, regardless of if you feel good or bad about gun control, because I don't know that I wanted to open that can of worms, but it, whatever you feel on that, it is pretty certain that America will defend herself. And our communities will defend themselves if necessary. Now, whether or not we should and, and certain people shouldn't, that's a whole other thing. But will we defend ourselves? Yes. And so for that, I do believe in America. Well, I can't blame you on that. I believe in Simon Templer because the world needs a saint. <laughs> oh, stop. <laughs> well, well, I, no, actually, when he was talking about what he was just mentioning, if we did get attacked, that would be the only time that I would actually look at a First Amendment, uh, <laughs> a Second Amendment solution to be well, you know, the First uh, Amendment motion. When the FBI put out its report a couple of years ago on the terrorist threats to America, the number one terrorist, terrorist threat to our country, actually, in terms of things actually happening here, was domestic terrorism, and people got real upset about that. Like they didn't want to hear that, uh, which I no, thought it's was much easier to hate somebody else. Far away. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we want them far away coming here to hurt you us. Know, so we don't want them already living here. Craig, where, do you, where do you stand on the uh, police shootings? On, 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 out of the out of the line of fire, preferably. I guess. 
Are we are we talking about the police shootings of people who we believe, or at least are alleged to have been innocent civilians? Is that what we're talking about? Yeah. That's, I, that's what I'm talking about. I think it's a tough. It's a. It's. It's tough, and 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 you actually asked me that, and and I can give one piece of insight. Is I do sit. I am a, a hearing officer for Las Vegas Metropolitan Police fatality shootings. And so in, Nevada, in Las Vegas, if a, if a police officer shoots and kills someone, there's a public hearing about that. Now, it's not a trial. There's no determination on guilt or innocence, but there is a public hearing where um, the district attorney's office presents the facts of the case. Uh, an individual called an ombudsman presents any, well, they can question it or present some other types of evidence. They also can present um, the statements from the family and things like that. And then there's a hearing officer who kind of presides over it. And I do preside over it. And, and on some of these, to me, it's extremely clear-cut what happened. There are others where there are questions. But um, yeah, I, I, I think it would be difficult. And I think, it's, I think it is difficult. And I think when we as a public judge those and we judge those shootings, for sure, for sure, we should not do it with 2020 hindsight. We should try to put ourselves in that officer's um, position and then go from there. And, and are all of them justified? I'm sure they're not. I'm, I'm sure they're not. Um, I think that would be a, a gross generalization to, to say that they're all justified. I mean, our first responders are our first responders, and I, I want to support them. Um, and hope, yeah, look, I'm not going up to that car, nor you. And that's what they do for a living. And damn, that ain't easy. Damn if somebody looks like they're going to harm them. You know, so they, they fire. And I, I get it. But the, uh, you know, it's become such a, uh, an issue. Yeah, there was an issue in Seattle when this guy was shot 27 times on his front porch because he was eating a Subway sandwich that had aluminum foil wrapped around it. Well, when you, when you put aluminum foil around a Subway sandwich, you deserve to be shot. Yeah, yeah. sure. <laughs> we all know that. Yeah. You know. It's called eating while being a smart cell. That's Subway. That's great. That's it's, the crime. Let's get Jared out of jail yeah. and have him talk to him. <laughs> no. He's, he's right where he belongs. Yeah, no kidding. Meanwhile, what do you do next, Craig Bulldog Grummond? What do I do next with the book, or what? No. Do I do what do you next? do next in your life? You've written the book, which is, as anyone will tell you, is is like doing a term paper. How many years did it take you to write it? Ten. Ten years. You don't want to spend another ten years writing a sequel, do you? I don't. No. <laughs> as the man who tries to put out a couple books a year, I can tell you it's too much work. <laughs> I I I don't. Uh, and being an author is not my. Uh, it, it, it's not what I necessarily ever wanted to do but to me this was a story and i think we all have it it's where we all have times in our life where we say you know what this was important and if i don't if i don't do something with it then it's going to just go poof right it's going to go up in smoke and that's going to be that and uh, being as you're a defense attorney in las vegas i got a question for you is it true that they don't have entrapment laws in las vegas no they they you could argue certain types of defenses as entrapment. As far as who is saying that, do we do we statutorily have that as a defense? Um, I don't. 
You know, I've never had it raised in state court. I've had it raised in federal court, which in federal court under the Constitution, um, you can you can raise it because it's a due process violation. And I've actually raised that. Uh, we didn't win, uh, but, we, but I raised that in a in a case where I represented uh, some motorcycle uh, bikers uh, on a on a case where there were some questions about that. So certainly on the federal side, you can raise it as a constitutional defense. Um, on the state side, I, you could still raise it as a constitutional defense, but as far as if we have it in the statute, I, I don't know off the top of my head. Let me ask you something. You wrote the book. It's a big part of your life, but you have another life, one that you've, you've delineated. How does that case and that book affect what you do professionally now? Well, I think the case does tell me, that, and I think, and it should tell, hopefully, the people who read it, is that things are not always as they seem. And just because some people decide that somebody has committed a crime and they can piece that puzzle together the way they want to piece it together, doesn't mean that that puzzle can't be made to look completely different and doesn't mean that there are other pieces of the puzzle that they don't even have and as a lawyer it does give me a little bit of insight into making sure that when we when I do get those cases which are not often but where I do get those cases where somebody is being completely wrongly charged uh, I, I do get cases where they're overcharged. That happens all the time. But where they're completely wrongly charged does not happen all the time. But when I do get those, that I don't sit back and take the approach of some old attorney who's ready to retire who doesn't want to do anything and say, well, uh, you know, by golly, yeah. they charge you. Yeah, um, verdict. Yeah. Right. I've um, seen it. <clears throat> Mark Boyer has a question. Yeah, uh, Two-prong. Let's take you back to uh, you, the case is uh, uh, closed and it's off for deliberations. Uh, how, what, was, what was the feeling about the chances for acquittal at that moment? The reporters who covered the case, they seemed confident uh, that we were going to get an acquittal. I had no idea because I, while I, 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 the only thing I knew is that I had given it and I'm not not saying I've done everything perfect because that's not that's not true. And any good lawyer will tell you at a trial, um, if you think you did everything perfect, you're an idiot because you you didn't. Uh, but I did the best I could, and I knew that. And um, that's really all I knew. And and other than that, I I was probably uh, I, I don't know that I was even breathing for the for the time it took the jury to come back. Which is about uh, about two and a half hours. Yes. Yeah, and then so uh, you're now getting to hear the verdict. Um, what was that like? Did you wet your pants? Well, I mean, I mean, I'm just trying to put my head. You well, know, this was a military head. tribunal, wasn't it? It, it was. was uh, okay, it was so that's of, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I, you still have the human emotions. Your heart's pounding. Your you you hope you did the best job you could to get your client acquitted. I I was elated. A a a, a burden that had built on my head and my body um, was was gone and also I mean it's and I, I don't even think this is in the book but um, this is true they had offered early on they never given us an actual offer to settle the case but as I got more information and more information about witnesses and and getting some stuff some really great stuff to challenge all this stuff they were saying 
and they said, well, are you going to make us an offer? And I said, here's my offer, dismiss the case. And knowing that I had said that put even greater burden on my shoulders. And of course, I had done that after consultation with my client, but at the same time, that was still words that I had said. And that, that, put, that put even a greater weight uh, upon us. And he was, your client was convicted of something and did time serve. What was that for? Without giving the whole story away, <laughs> yes, he was convicted of planting command wire on a dead body. Which all that means is, is he was convicted of placing detonation wire, which would be used to put an IED or any sort of explosive device, which it's like a little power cord. Um, he was accused of dropping that on uh, on the dead body, and to make that him look was, like that a was what he was convicted of. I knew a girl at an IUD like that. <laughs> there you go. Was it made your penis explode? Uh, <laughs> no, it was a very painful. Craig, yeah. there's, a, there's a couple of high-profile cases in Vegas right now. You chase stuff like that or, or let it go? For instance, O.J., for instance, the guy that uh, may have killed his son that was picked up last night in Vegas. Um, you know, are those types of cases uh, something you chase? We, we do. Uh, I do some high-profile cases nowadays. Uh, I I represented the former president of the Vago Motorcycle Club in um, Las Vegas and, and have done some other cases like that. Uh, a lot of those, though, are court-appointed cases. A lot of those times, uh, individuals, now, even even to the extent of now, OJ, I mean, a lot of these cases are court-appointed um, or court-appointed. Well, I shouldn't say. I think OJ's post-conviction, which is what's going on now, I believe those are court-appointed, but I could, I'm could. i not 100% sure, so I don't want to, if somebody is following the OJ, I don't know 100% if that's true. But a lot of those times, the high-profile murders, the high-profile rapes, um, the real salacious, those things are, are court-appointed, and I do less and less court-appointed cases. So a lot of the times, if I'm getting hired... Um, it's by big-time gangsters and drug dealers, right? Well, that, that, <laughs> that's true, but also the smaller cases that we do that may be somebody high-profile, like um, we will try to do everything to keep the case no-profile uh, because that is in the client's yeah. best interest. And so Absolutely. That, that's what we do now, a lot more of. Well, if I get in any more trouble in Vegas, I've got your number now. <laughs> yeah, but that's uh, right, exactly this is right. fascinating. We, uh, that's our guy in Vegas. Yeah, that's our guy in Vegas yeah. now. And he's got a book out. Saving Sandoval from Wild Blue Press. Craig W. Drummond, Saving Sandoval. It uh, comes out officially any moment, but you can advance order right now at special pricing. So buy several today, and you'll get it landing in your lap and in thank the near you. future. And thank you for doing everything that you did for that soldier. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. See you in Vegas. Hey, girl, is he everything you wanted in me? You know I gave you the world You had me in the palm of your hand So why your love went away I just can't seem to understand Thought it was me 